Well, if you haven't already, make sure your Bible is open to Genesis 15 as we look at one of the mountain peaks in all of the narrative and storyline of Scripture. Uh, And as Mark mentioned, I I started losing my voice yesterday. And if you know how many kids I have, you probably can understand a little reason why. But hopefully there's enough in the tank uh, to make it through here. How do I know that you can be trusted? That is one of the questions we find ourselves asking frequently throughout our lives in various situations. For example, you're a kid on the elementary school playground, and your best friend has promised that when he's captain of the kickball team, he's going to pick you first. But how do you know that you can trust him? It's not just enough that he tells you when he's captain he's going to pick you. He must promise by taking a special oath. Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Now you know that you can trust the captain of the kickball team to pick you first. If you're purchasing a home, how do I know that purchase can be trusted? So you do things like look at a truth and housing report, which is an official document laying out whether there's hazardous materials in this home, or you pay a licensed home inspector to come and look through every square inch of the house to see if what you're getting, what you're seeing is what you're buying. Or if your daughter comes to you one day and says, Dad, I've met Prince Charming. You get on the phone right away and you call Mark and Wendy Mernan and you say, can I get a background check run for me? First name Prince, last name Charming. What was Ronald Reagan saying? Trust but verify, right? We do these type of things to demonstrate to others or to discover the answer to that important question we ask. How do I know that you can be trusted? It's the very question that Abraham is asking of the Lord in Genesis 15. You can hear it lying just beneath the surface of the question in Genesis 15:8. Look there with me. But he said, O Lord God, How am I to know that I shall possess it? Abraham is asking this question because he's living in the difficult and uncomfortable place somewhere between promises made and promises fulfilled. You know, when you go to a place like like a mall or a big airport and you don't know where you are, you look on a map and it says, you are here. There's no map that Abraham can look at where it says, you are here. He has no clue the time frame of what he's dealing with with the Lord. He knows that there's promises made. He doesn't know when or how they're going to be fulfilled. So he's in this difficult and uncomfortable kind of in-between time. So knowing what the promises are, but not having any clue how they're going to be fulfilled, he's asking the Lord, how do I know that I can trust you? And this question, it doesn't just bubble up in our hearts out of thin air. If it's on our minds, if it's spoken by our lips, it's because we're wrestling with certain things in our hearts that are causing us to ask this question. And Abraham is no exception to that. Abraham is asking the Lord, oh Lord, how do I know the trustworthiness of your promises? Because he's wrestling with fears. He's wrestling with his perception of his circumstances. And he's wrestling with waiting on God's timing. Those are, those are the three kind of tributaries that are feeding this question. How do I know that you can be trusted? If you look at verse 1, the Lord says, first thing to Abram, fear not, Abram. Well, one of the implications of 
the Lord saying that very thing is that Abraham is wrestling with fears. The Lord says fear not because it's the very thing that he's struggling with. Think about the events we just looked at in Genesis 14. Genesis 14, Abraham went on this very unlikely rescue mission, and yet he was successful. But in the process, he has probably garnered for himself some very big, very bad enemies. He didn't destroy them and wipe them out. He drove them away. So he's perhaps wondering, okay, what happens when they regroup? What happens when they decide, you know what? We don't like this guy. We don't want him in our way. And the king of Sodom comes to offer him these goods, glitter and shine, because he wants to form an alliance with him. And he says, no, I will not take one thing that you're handing me. Kings generally don't like when you throw things back in their face. What, what am I going to do if the king of Sodom wants to come after me? He has fears. Our fears, big ones, like the threat of war, maybe middle-sized ones like the threat of rising inflation, or, or even little ones, kids, like the threat of the dark in the night when you wake up after a bad dream and you don't know whether you should stay in your bed or go and run into the dark and find your mom and dad. Fears have a way of bubbling up in our hearts certain questions. In light of my fears, Lord, how do I know that you can be trusted? And then Abraham's assessment of his circumstances is the other thing that's fueling these questions. Look at verses two and three. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Essentially, Abraham is saying, you know, Lord, I'm, I'm struggling to hold on to these promises because in my circumstances currently, I can't see how you're going to fulfill them. I don't, I don't see any evidence directly in front of me that shows me that you're going to fulfill these promises. I'm homeless and I'm childless. And you said I'm going to be a great nation with a great land and, and I, don't, I don't see it, Lord. So often our circumstances can make it seem like a, a thick, dense fog has rolled in and the, and the visibility level is very low. We, it's hard to see God's wisdom. It's hard to see God's goodness. It's hard to see him working out his purposes. Or it feels like thick clouds hanging over the sun. It's hard to, to feel the vitamin D because there are thick clouds hanging over it. And so our circumstances cause us to ask, how do I know you can be trusted? A few years back, I was sitting in the emergency room with my wife, Ashley, and the doctors had come in and discovered that her pain that caused her to, to fall and almost pass out was because she was going through an ectopic pregnancy. You know, it's an unviable pregnancy when the baby is born outside of the, the normal place. And we're sitting there discovering these things and the thick, dense fog starts to roll in. The clouds start to block the sun and you're wondering, what if, what's next, what's gonna happen? And in all of that, the eyes of faith start to blur. It, it, it's hard to pray and to meditate on scriptures and to just kind of see past all the circumstances because they're so thick in front of you. And I know for many of you, you've been through much harder circumstances. The fog feels much thicker. And one of the only prayers you can pray is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And then there is the waiting the waiting on God's timing. Genesis 12, when we first meet Abraham to Genesis 15, about 10 years have passed. And we know that because we get a time marker in the next chapter, Genesis 16. 
10 years since these great promises. 10 long years of waiting and waiting and waiting. And you can see it subtly wearing on Abraham. Look what he says, I continue childless. He doesn't just say I'm childless, Lord. I continue 10 years childless. Think of the effect of erosion, your waves crashing time after time against a rock, kind of slowly wearing it down. That's what, that's what waiting on the Lord can, can feel like. You know, waiting on the Lord kind of gives us two roads that we can go, kind of testing our faith. One road, the waiting, in one sense, we, we, we age like wine. We're refined over time. We become sweeter, better. Or you, you age like milk left at room temperature, that you get more sour, more bitter. You're, you're wondering Lord, what are you doing? I'm, I'm sick of waiting. We don't like to wait for anything. We wish that the Lord worked like DoorDash, right? You order it, you track it, and it shows up at your door, or you get your money back. You wish that the Lord worked like Amazon. You wish that there was a same-day delivery option with everything you pray for. And yet that's not how the Lord works often. Ten years, the Lord says to Abraham, trust me and wait. That's the story of his life. Abraham, leave your family. Uh, where am I going, Lord? I'll tell you later. <laughs> Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. When are you going to give it to you, Lord? I'll tell you later. I'm going to make you a great nation. Okay, great. When am I going to get a child? I'll tell you later. Wait. To which Abraham asked in this passage, Oh, Lord, how do I know that I can trust you? And the Lord is gracious to answer. He gives three answers to that question. For Abraham and for us. The first answer is this. You want to know how I can be trusted? Consider my character. Look at my character. Look with me at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Fear not, Abram. Well, why should I not fear? I am your shield your reward shall be very great. So Abraham has just come off this high of a military victory, and you would think he would be floating on cloud nine. If there ever there was a time where you think he wouldn't be doubting, wouldn't it be now? And yet that's not how our, our hearts work. It's sometimes after the highest highs that we quickly sink to some of our lowest lows. We can move from the height of hope to the valley of despair pretty quickly. It doesn't take long. And this is where Abraham is. He, after this great victory, is weighed down by his fears. Think, what, what causes fears to stir up in your heart, in your life? It's probably one of these three things. We fear threats that we don't have the ability to stop or defeat. We fear circumstances that we don't have the ability to change or alter. And we fear possible future outcomes that we don't have the ability to control or guarantee. Though that's what often feeds fear. Fear fills us with a sense that we're helpless, that we're defenseless, that we're in danger. You'd almost say fear makes you feel like you're a soldier on a battlefield with no armor to protect you, just exposed. And that's why the Lord says what he says to Abram. I am your shield. The very thing that is fueling Abraham's fear, the Lord speaks directly to. You think you're defenseless, helpless, in danger? I'm your shield. And at this time, in this culture, when you went out to battle as a warrior, you're facing arrows and spears. You can almost think, you know, Lord of the Rings type of military. And 
yet you need to be protected. So if you were a warrior, one of the things you'd have next to you is you'd have a shield bearer whose sole job on the battlefield was to stand next to you with a full body shield protecting you from flying darts and thrown spears so that you could focus on maneuvering and battling. And the Lord says, in a sense, everywhere you go, you have the universe's best shield bearer standing right next to you with the strongest shield that you could ever imagine. Kids, you think Captain America's vibranium shield was powerful? Well, even that broke, if you remember, okay? And the Lord is saying, it has nothing on the shield of protection that I am for my people who I stand next to. And this is a comfort to us because it teaches us two things. One, it's a comfort because when the Lord says he's our shield, it means everything that comes to us must go through him. Nothing gets to us except that it goes through the Lord. And yet, it also means that whatever the Lord permits to go through him to us, he is still there as our shield bearer who does not leave our side, who does not forsake his saints. And so the next time fear assaults you with a sense of helplessness and defenselessness, like you're in danger, then you take up the sword, the spirit, which is the word of God, and remember that you have a shield. Like in Psalm 144:2, he is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield in whom I take refuge, who subdues people under me. That is who we have when we ask the question, how do I know that you can trust? We have a shield. Well, the second answer from the Lord to Abram is this. You want to know how I can be trusted? Listen to my word. Listen to the words that I speak. So upon hearing from the Lord that he has a shield in him, Abraham thinks, okay, that's great. It's wonderful that I have a shield. I still don't have a kid, though. What what about the other thing that you promised me? So look at verse three. Abraham understands the character of God, but now now he's kind of filing a complaint in, in verse three. Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So as I, as I mentioned earlier, the reason Abraham is struggling with these questions is because ever since he first heard the promise, he's been kept in suspense. He has been told, wait for 10 years. And from our human vantage point, waiting feels like unnecessary delay. You said it, why don't you do it right now? Why this unnecessary delay? Like when you order something and it doesn't come in the time that you want it to, what do you do? You go online, you type in the search number, you're looking, Where? why, why the delay? We're like Veruca Salt from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. She's got a, there's a, you should look up the song that she sings in there. If you want to know what we sound like when we have to wait, this, this captures it like nothing else. When we have to wait for anything, we, like Veruca Salt, we break out into song and saying, give it to me now. I want tomorrow today. I love that line. And that's, I want tomorrow today. But from the Lord's vantage point, he is never late nor is he early. He fulfills his promises precisely when he means to. And so if we're made to wait, it's because the Lord is up to something. He is working on us in our waiting. Waiting is not unnecessary delay. Waiting is one of God's tools 
to conform us to his image. We don't like that tool, but the Lord uses it and he uses it effectively. Waiting is the tool that God uses to conform us to our character, to teach us things that we need to learn had we not had to wait. So so what is the Lord doing? How does the Lord work on us while we wait? Well, if I was doing another sermon, here would be those six points for that question. What does the Lord do in us while he makes us wait? One, he teaches us that we're not in control. When we have to wait, we're reminded afresh, you're not in charge. He exposes our lack of contentment in our present circumstances. Don't you see what I have given you? Why do you why do you keep thinking that I haven't given you anything just because I'm making you wait for this? I have given you much. Be content. He helps us grow in the virtue of patience. All of us need to grow in that virtue. He increases our dependence upon him while we wait. He trains us to submit to his plans and his timetable. And, this is key, he prepares us to enjoy the fulfillment of what we're waiting for, even more so than had we not had to wait. When God makes this way, he's preparing us and enlarging our ability to enjoy what we're waiting for. And no one illustrates that more than George Mueller. George Mueller, wonderful Christian man who lived in Europe and took care of orphans in the 1800s. If I were to write his biography, I would tell it, learning to wait on the Lord. This man knew how to wait on the Lord. Here's what he said. It is impossible to describe the abundance of peace and heavenly joy that often flows into my soul when I finally obtain the help and blessing that I have waited on God for. The longer I have had to wait and the greater my need has been, the greater the joy when at last the answer came. Here's a man who learned to wait by experience. But does the Lord make us wait in silence? Does the Lord make us wait in the darkness? Absolutely not. The Lord gives us the light of his promises while we wait. We do not wait in silence. We do not wait in darkness. Look at verses four and five. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So God, condescending, kind of stooping to Abraham's level, specifies his promise to him. You're doubting? So let me give you specifics. I'm not just going to give you a child, generically or metaphorically speaking. I am going to do the impossible. From your no longer spring chicken body, I am going to give you your very own son. And then verse 5 is God's way of saying to Abraham, He's not just going to do it on a small scale. He's going to do it on a grand scale. Look at the stars. Can you number them? Do you have the time and the mathematical ability to calculate all the stars? You do not. That's how many your offspring is going to be. Just as you cannot count the stars on a clear, beautiful night sky, so you will not be able to count the magnitude of the promise I'm going to fulfill for you. And I'm convinced that the Lord has a dual purpose in showing Abraham the stars. He's not just showing them to signify the scope of the promise. He is showing them to signify and illustrate the power of the one who is making the promise. Think of what the stars represent. The stars represent Psalm 33, 6. 
By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Or Isaiah 40, 26. He brings out the stars by number. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his power. And because he is strong in might, not one of the stars is missing. What are stars? Stars are not just balls of helium and hydrogen that give off light and heat. That's what they're made of, but that's not what they are. They are spoken words of the Lord that he sustains moment by moment because he brought them into being out of nothing and he upholds them by the word of his power. That's what stars are. And stars speak day and night if you're careful enough to listen. If you listen closely enough to the stars, they are declaring the glory of God day after day, night after night, saying, look at how powerful the Almighty is. Look what he can do. Is anything too hard for the Lord? If he can do that, a barren womb and an old man are absolutely no obstacle to him if he can speak and sustain the stars. We can trust the Lord because he speaks words that have the ability to accomplish what he says. The Lord's words have self-creating power in them. When he speaks promises, when he says to a dead man in a tomb, Lazarus, come forth, his word has the ability to accomplish that which he sends it out for. His words bring light out of darkness and life out of barrenness. So how firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. Well, third answer that the Lord gives to Abraham is this. You want to know how I can be trusted? Look at my oath. Look at the vow that I made for you. So before the days of notaries and witnesses and gold medallion stamps from the bank and and sticking needles in your eye, okay, if you're going to confirm and authenticate your word to demonstrate, to, to seal its trustworthiness, you would perform an oath ceremony. Now, we don't have many, if any of these around. I mean, the closest one I can think of is in the courtroom, you come under oath. And, and how do you signify that? You, you lay your hand on a Bible. You, you raise your right hand. You, you take certain vows. You're putting yourself under oath. You're, you're rising to a higher level. If you lie under oath, that's, that's a different level of crime than if you, I guess, if you just lie to your parents. One is prosecuted. You, can, you guys can tell me later. The other is, is not. I prosecute them at my house, but, sorry. In an oath ceremony, you take a promise or you, you make a pact by saying, if I fail to keep this promise, if I fail to keep my end of the bargain, let me suffer the consequences represented in this ceremony. One I can think of from from literature is in uh, Tom Sawyer, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. They see someone get murdered because they're out hiding in a graveyard at night that they're not supposed to see. And so Tom and Huck Finn decide, we better promise not to tell anyone or the other one's a dead person. So they actually cut their hands and they take what's called a blood oath. By by willing to put some skin in the game, by cutting themselves, the idea of cut a covenant, they shake hands and they say, well, let blood flow from me if I break my word to tell on Huck Finn or tell on Tom Sawyer. That's kind of coming from some of this in the Bible. So in response to Abraham's desire for assurance, the Lord signs his name, as it were, as he performs this oath ceremony that is highly symbolic. So look at verses 9 and 10. So Abraham asks the question, how how, how am I supposed to know? And here's what the Lord says. 
He said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these. He cut them in half, and he laid each half against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. So Abraham collects all these animals, and all these animals will one day be a part of the sacrificial system that the Lord will lay out in Leviticus. These are all part of the sacrificial system of animals that can atone for your sin. And what Abraham does is he cuts them all in half. He severs them in half, and then he sets them in in a row, in an aisle, marking out a walking path. So if you can picture it, you have these sacrificial animals been severed in half. There's blood everywhere. They've been set side by side, and now there's a walking path that is, is covered in blood. Then in verse 12, you see Abraham's participation level in this oath ceremony. Look at verse 12. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And I don't think this is Abraham going to sleep on the job like the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is God basically giving Abraham a deep sleep, showing him that you're not making an oath to me. You're not making an oath with me. I am making one to you. Your participation in this level is to receive and rest. Mine is to do and perform. Abraham is asleep. If God's promises required even an ounce of contribution from us for them to be fulfilled, we would have reason to doubt and be concerned. Yet, God's promises are dependent on no one but him alone. And therefore, we have every reason to hope and eagerly anticipate their fulfillment. The Lord's promises are personally going to be fulfilled by him, unilaterally going to be fulfilled by him. And the Lord who promises has a mouth that cannot lie. He has faithfulness that cannot cease, and he has purposes that cannot be thwarted by anything. That's the one who's making the promise. We receive and we rest in them. Well, then in verses 13 to 16, I'm not going to go into the the details of them. God tells Abraham the timeline of the fulfillment of the promise. He gets specific with the timeline. And guess what? It involves more waiting, lots more waiting. He said, 400 years, your people will be slaves in a place that's not their own. But guess what? Not only is it going to involve more waiting, it's going to involve more displays of my greatness and glory when I bring them out with great riches into the land that they're to possess. Well, finally, in verse 17, the ceremony reaches a climactic point as something or perhaps someone passes through the severed animals. Look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. I think what this shows us is that God seems to be a fan of pyrotechnics because every place he shows up, there's smoke and fire. Think about it. When Israel comes to the base of Mount Sinai, what do they see? They see the mountain clothed and wrapped in smoke. When God leads them at night, what do they see? They see the pillar of fire that leads them. God loves proper pyrotechnics. And he appears here. And remember, the first audience reading this is the Exodus generation audience. They would know exactly what's happening. Smoke and fire, that's the Lord. The Lord is passing between these pieces by himself. So he walks through the severed 
animals. What does it mean? Well, in doing this, the Lord is saying, let me become like these severed animals if I do not fulfill my promise. Death be to me the one who cannot die. Mortality be to me the immortal one if I do not fulfill my promise to you, Abraham. And I know that because the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 6.13 says this about the ceremony. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to make an oath, he took an oath on himself. So when you see this oath ceremony, you're seeing the Lord saying, it's dependent on me. It's unilaterally, personally guaranteed by me that I will fulfill what I have said. I can be trusted. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. But even more affirming of the trustworthiness of the Lord is when the symbolism of this ceremony becomes the real and excruciating experience of the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. In this ceremony, the Lord, he's not just displaying his trustworthiness to us. He's visualizing the lengths to which he's willing to go and the cost it's going to take to bring us into a relationship with him where we can know the blessings and fulfillment of his promises. This is not just symbolism. This is prophecy, as it were. Lord symbolizing what's going to happen to me, but also visualizing what his son is going to do for us so that we can become inheritors of the promises to Abraham. Because there came a day when Jesus had to walk alone down a deadly, cursed, and bloody path. He was alone because everyone who had been near him at that point had abandoned him. He was alone because they fell asleep on him. He was alone because even the one Peter who swore an oath that he would go to death with the Lord had broken his oath. The Lord was the only one at that moment keeping his promises, his eternal covenant promise. Only he could walk this path and he had to walk it alone. And this path was not marked with the blood of sacrificial animals. This path was marked by the blood of the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sins of the world. Because as he walked, blood dripped from his thorn-pierced head. It dripped from his whip-scourged back. And it dripped because the, the cross, the instrument of judgment and curse, was bearing down on his back so heavy. And as he hung on that cursed cross, all the weight of all the consequences, of all the causes why we should never receive one promise for God, from God or partake of one of his promises, were bearing down on the one who had never forsaken or disobeyed, his father. He was suffering because of our failures so that we could be treated as if we had never let the Lord down. He was bearing our curse so that we who have faith in Christ would only know the blessing of the Lord. He walked the path of judgment all by himself. He cried out all by himself, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we could walk in fellowship with the Lord and know that he'll never leave us or forsake us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Why? So that the blessing of Abraham might come to you. That's what this ceremony is symbolizing in Genesis 15. So when we ask the Lord, how do I know 
that you can be trusted? Here's the answer. Consider my character. I am your shield who stands with you. Nothing comes to you except that it goes through me. Listen to my word. See its power. I can bring light out of darkness, life out of barrenness. Look at my oath. I swear on myself that I will fulfill my word. And look at my son. Look at his cross. I did not spare my own son, but graciously gave him up for you. Will I not also with him give you all things that you need? As we close, the question now turns to us. Do you trust the Lord? We ask the question often, how do I know that you can be trusted? And the Lord over and over demonstrates that he can be. Now the question comes to us, do you trust the Lord? It's one thing to dissect what it means when the Lord says he's a shield. It's a whole other thing to say the Lord is my shield. It's one thing to look up at the stars in the night sky and marvel that they're there. It's another thing to say the Lord my God put every single one of those stars there and knows them all by name. It's one thing to look at the cross and say, Jesus died, or to look at the tomb and say, Jesus rose. It's another thing to look at the cross and say, he loved me and gave himself up for me. It's another thing to look at the empty tomb and say, he was raised for my justification. Well, the Lord answered Abraham's question and Abraham responded. And the reason Abraham is called the father of faith Not the father of faithfulness, there's a difference. The father of faith is because of his response in Genesis 15, 6. Look there. And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. From Abraham in the Old Testament to Acts in the New Testament, the way of a saving relationship with God, to enter into covenant with God, has always been the same. We are saved through faith, not works. Faith is the only instrument or means of salvation. Anything mixed with it only pollutes it. Faith is the only instrument of salvation. We are saved in one object, by looking to the Lord, not ourselves. The Lord alone is the object of salvation. And we are saved because through faith in him, the Lord declares us righteous, even though we are not righteous. You want to... You Marvel at the last word in Genesis 15:6. Come back for Genesis 16 and see what Abraham does there. By faith in the Lord, we are declared by him what we are not. He declares us righteous even though we are not. And yet his word has power to make the cause to be that which is not. And commenting on this verse, Over a thousand years later, here's what the Apostle Paul said. The words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Do you believe that? Not just intellectually, it's one thing. Not just traditionally, Not just culturally, do you believe it personally? The key faith in Christ is those personal pronouns, my Lord and my God. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge, to Jesus have fled. Let's pray.